1: testimony in Christ should be more important to you than anything else, anything else in this life, money, career, your plans, your agenda, no matter what, our actions, our attitudes, everything we do should be guided by a concern for Christ's reputation. We want to please him and we want to enhance his glory to a lost world.
2: Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our current study is titled, Hindrances to the Gospel, and today, as well as the next two sessions, we'll be focusing on one particular verse, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, and the challenge to us as Christ followers to live lives of integrity. We have lots of ground to cover today, so let's get going. Here's Pastor Steve.
1: When Charles Spurgeon became the pastor of New Park Street Baptist Church in London, He was only 19 years old. Many of you may not know that. Many of you may not know of Spurgeon. Spurgeon was in his day the greatest preacher and remains to this day noted as the prince of preachers. But he was only 19 years old when he became the pastor of a rather large church in London. And due to his youthfulness and uh, his distinct preaching style, which nobody else had at that time, Spurgeon experienced an onslaught of criticism horrible criticism. There was a steady stream of newspaper articles that denounced his character, denounced his preaching, denounced his his motives, even denounced his doctrine. His sermons were called trashy, and some expressed doubt that he was even a converted man. His early success was compared to a rocket that would suddenly climb and then just drop out of sight. In other words, they thought he was a fad. He uh, He was a gimmick. He was a kid preacher who was popular Now, but in a few years, no one would ever hear of him. In fact, one critic wrote these words. Whose servant is he? What proof does he give that his is a heart searching, a Christ exalting, a truth unfolding, a sinner converting, a church feeding, a soul saving ministry? Now, I don't know who said that, but I know that nobody else remembers that man today. But every preacher who is serious about the word of God, knows of Charles Spurgeon. In fact, the, uh, the slanderous articles and critical articles became so numerous that Mrs. Spurgeon began collecting them and putting them in a book. And when that book was complete, she hung a scripture passage in their room for her husband to constantly see. And the scripture that she hung was Matthew five eleven and 12, which says this, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil uh, against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What a great thing to do for a husband. And what was Charles Spurgeon's reaction to all this? Remember, he was just 19 years old, and, and it continued for several years after. But uh, what was his reaction to all the criticisms, the uh, denouncements, the the attacks upon his character, attacks upon his ministry? According to one of his biographers, and there were many of his biographers, so we can't just say one, but he did this. He fell to his knees, and he prayed this prayer. Master, I will not keep back even my character for thee. If I must lose that too, then let it go. It is the dearest thing I have, but it uh, it shall go. If like my master, they shall say that I have a devil and am mad, or like him, I am a drunken man and a wine bibber. See, even though he was uh, young in years, Charles Spurgeon had the maturity and the the insight to understand that commitment to Christ inevitably invites attacks and, and insults and false accusations. That's always the way it is. This has been true of all of God's servants. In fact, that's what Jesus meant when he said, for thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And long before Spurgeon arrived on the scene, not only the prophets experienced this, but the apostle Paul went through the same type of heartache of being criticized and slandered by false teachers. And that's what we've been studying in Second Corinthians. This is a book with the background of attacks on Paul and his ministry. I'd like you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Because as Charles Spurgeon acknowledged that his zeal for Christ was mistaken for madness, so the Apostle Paul encountered the same accusation. We've seen this in chapter 5, verse 13, which I think is a pivotal verse. Paul said, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. What an incredible statement. We've gone over this before. He in essence says, if you think I've lost my mind, understand that my behavior is attributed to God. If you think that that I'm irrational because of my commitment to Christ and, and a willingness to to lay down my life in service, understand it's for God. Understand that what makes me tick is a zeal for God. And like Spurgeon, the apostle Paul, was not really concerned about what others thought about him personally, but he did have a concern. He had a concern about the message that he preached. He wanted it to be preached with purity, but he wanted to make sure that the gospel that he preached would not be hindered by some inconsistency in his life. That's a tremendous truth to understand. Paul wasn't concerned about what people thought about him. In fact, he only defended himself, not on a personal basis, but on an apostolic basis. If they, if they discard him and his message, then they discard the gospel and they discard his apostolic authority. So even when he defends himself, it's not about, it's not about him. But he was concerned that the gospel that he preached would not be hindered by some flaw in his character. And so beginning in chapter six, verse three, he writes this, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. He's just talked as he opened chapter six about the Corinthians making sure that uh, they not receive the grace of God in vain so that they don't hinder the gospel that they, that they need to be zealous and they need to understand the sufficiency of Christ's death for their sins and that that's what salvation is totally about from beginning and ends, justification by grace through faith alone. And Paul wanted them to be certain that they were sound on this and thus when they are sound, they were sound on this, they would not hinder the gospel, they would spread the gospel. Nobody ever had an evangelistic zeal who doubted the sufficiency of Christ's death for their sins. And then in verse three, he moves on to himself. He puts the spotlight on himself and he says, I want to make sure that there's nothing in my life. There's no uh, stumbling block. There's no hindrance to the gospel. I want to make sure that no one looks at my life and uses my life as an excuse for not being attracted to Jesus Christ. That's really where, where he's going in this passage. And it's really something, and I'm taking our, uh, my, my time and your time going slowly through this because I really want us to have the same heart as, as Paul had, and I hope you do. The same concern for your testimony, that your testimony in Christ should be more important to you than anything else, anything else in this life, money, career, your plans, your agenda, no matter what, our actions, our attitudes, everything we do should be guided by a concern for Christ's reputation. We want to please him and we want to enhance his glory to a lost world. That is the real issue of life for a Christian. In everything, we are to give glory to God. And one of the best ways to show God's glory and the greatness of Christ and the validity of the gospel message that we proclaim is to demonstrate in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, that we will endure and persevere in our zeal and service for the Lord. In other words, that no matter how difficult life might be, you're going to be loyal to Christ. You're going to be steadfast to him because what that does is reveal not only the sincerity and earnestness in your life to serve Christ, but it reveals that Jesus Christ is worth serving, that Jesus Christ is worth everything. And all of this is far more important and makes a much greater impact on our world than any cliches and and trite expressions that uh, we use as Christians. That, that kind of stuff doesn't make an impact on anybody. So beginning with verse four, Paul gives a rather lengthy list of all that he endured in his service for Christ. And in spite of all the suffering, he tells us that he did endure. He did endure. And this endurance reveals how great Christ and his ministry really are. Now, let me just read verse four, and then I want to comment on it, and then we'll dig into it. He says, having, having said in verse three that he doesn't want his life to be an excuse, a stumbling block, a justification for unbelief on the part of someone, he says, but in everything, so here's how he lived, he says, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Th- that thought is, I introduce myself as a servant of God. Well, how do we know he's a servant of God? How do we know he's real? How do we know this message is real? He says, in much endurance, I endured, I was steadfast in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, and then he goes on to say the other things he endured. And the key thought is that he endured. He endured, and then he tells us how he endured and what he endured. Now, I, I want you to understand that this is a, a passage of scripture that is especially pertinent to Christian leaders. It's not limited to Christian leaders and ministers because we're all we're all to be servants of the Lord. We all represent him as believers. But for those of you who are either in leadership or are preparing for leadership, this is critical because in this passage, Paul tells us what our testimony should be like. Those in ministry have a high calling, a a holy calling to represent the Lord Jesus Christ properly and accurately. We are to be, in the words of 1 Timothy 3, we are to be blameless, we are to be above reproach. And people especially evaluate Christ and the gospel based on the behavior of Christian leaders. They they base it on the behavior of, of all of us, but especially Christian leaders, because we are highly identifiable. That's why we have high profiles in the community as his ambassadors. So we, we need to represent him properly. James sort of talks about that in his little book. He said, don't be too quick to be a teacher. There, there is a stricter judgment for those who teach, and there is a stricter judgment for those who lead. But this passage is applicable and relevant for all of us because every Christian has a responsibility to serve Christ in a manner that speaks well of Jesus. That's far more important than anything else in life. So for the last few weeks, as we've been going through this list, of what Paul endured in the face of difficulties, I've, I've found that it's helpful to classify his trials under several categories. Number one, there are general trials that he endured. He says in verse four, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. These are general trials. These are the general pressures and difficulties that come with serving the Lord. No matter what ministry you have, no matter where you serve, you have pressures, you have difficulties, you have you have hard problems and, and issues to deal with. That just goes with the territory. General trials. Paul said, I endured those. Secondly, he says that, uh, he endured through sufferings inflicted upon him by others. He says in verse five, in the beginning, at the beginning of this verse, he says, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults. This would be physical persecution that Paul experienced at the hands of those who opposed the gospel. He was beat up physically. The man was beaten up. He was thrown in prison many, many, many times. And the word tumult means riots. He didn't just cause a riot. They attacked him after and would have killed him had not God intervened. Paul suffered physical suffering. And yet, and yet he endured. He didn't walk away. He didn't say, you know, I think I'll go back to tent making. It's a lot easier and it pays more money. I think I'll do that. But he didn't do that. He also speaks of another trial, self-inflicted hardships. Notice the end of verse 5, what he writes there. He says, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger. Paul, quite frankly, endured fatigue. He was a tired man. He he had sleep deprivation. He was hungry, all because he served Christ. He was so earnest in ministry that he put his body under tremendous strain in order to to carry out his service for the master. Now, I want to say something I didn't bring out last week. And just to just to balance this, because sometimes people can see that and run with it and uh, neglect their family and justify it by a passage like this. Let me say that uh, it's important to keep in mind Paul was not married, nor did he have children to go home to. He didn't need to spend time with any family members. He writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that he was a single man, he had the gift of singleness, and he writes in 1 Corinthians 7 that there is an advantage to being single if you have that gift. Be single, he says, because the one who is single can devote more time to the service of the Lord. But the implication there, and, and not only the implication, he does say it, when you have a spouse, you better spend time with them. You don't have the luxury of, of living the kind of life exactly like he lived. There is no virtue in being a workaholic and neglecting your family because you're just too busy serving the Lord in the church. Serving your family is just as important, if not the priority of serving the church. You're married to your spouse and you have those kids that God entrusted to you. There are other leaders who can take your place in the church. Nobody can take your place at home. So I just wanted to clarify that, lest you think that, all right, this justifies the neglect for the sake of the kingdom. Part of the, the kingdom's responsibility is called your home. So Having said that, let's move on. We want to continue examining the list of what Paul endured for Christ. But the but the next category is a little bit different than the previous ones. The previous statements all had to do with his specific trials, his suffering, his afflictions. However, he changes gear with the next set of, of words to reveal that uh, not only did he endure trials, but watch this, in his endurance he displayed godly character. You know, anybody can endure. You just tough it out. Anybody can do that. Anyone really with just a sort of a tenacious spirit can endure. But not everybody, even God's servants can demonstrate godly character or do demonstrate godly character when the pressure is on. Paul did, and this is a tremendous, tremendous uh, example for us. What brings reproach to the gospel And the ministry is often that God's servants don't behave the way they should. Right. I mean, you know that I know that everybody knows that they may work hard. They may endure trials. But the questions are these. Are they gracious to others in the midst of their trials? Are they kind even in the midst of suffering or do they turn inward, become self-centered? Are they patient with people when they're under pressure? Anybody can be patient and sweet spirited when there's no pressure. The issue about ministry and for a Christian is what kind of people are we when there's pressure? These are the kind of behavior patterns that uh, people look for to see the reality of Christ in our lives on a daily basis. And it's these godly character characteristics that were in Paul's life, as he tells us in Second Corinthians, chapter six, verse six, how he faced trials and suffering and self-inflicted hardship while maintaining Godly character and behavior. And so the next category that we're going to look at is this. Paul endured in godly character even during stressful times. Verse six, he writes in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love. Now, before we even begin to look at this list, I want want to make something very clear about Paul. You might look at this and say, boy, he sounds arrogant. Who would tell us that he's he's all of this? Who, who tells these people these things? Michelle and I were once at a banquet and uh, heard somebody get up and and they were listing all of the things that they have done in life and all of this incredible, incredibly good things about them. And honestly, I thought he must be joking. It has to be a joke. It's like I wrote the book Humility and How I Attained It. You know, it has to be a joke telling us how much money he gave to this organization and that. And and I'm thinking, this guy's really funny. And then he sat down. It wasn't a joke. He was serious. Paul is not a braggart. Paul was not telling us how great he was so we would applaud him. Let me explain. There are some Christians, especially Christian leaders, who boast about themselves and their accomplishments. And why do they do this? Because Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 6. They do it because they want the praise of men. And we all struggle in that area. You just have to die to that. We want the praise of men. That's the way the Pharisees were. Jesus said the Pharisees had this ostentatious show of of piety. He said, and the reason is because they wanted the praise of men. And Jesus, quite frankly, said they have their reward. They want the applause of men. They got it. They don't get God's reward. You get man's, man's applause, you don't get God's. Now, Paul used to be a Pharisee, and then he got saved. And Paul was transformed on the inside, and he really did have godly character. The Pharisees didn't, they thought they did, but Paul really did. Keep in mind that when Paul, when Paul tells us about the good things in his life, he was pure, he had knowledge, he was patient, all that. Keep in mind, this is the same man who always told us that he was the chief of sinners. This is the same man who said he wasn't even fit to be an apostle in 1st Corinthians chapter 15. If you'll turn back there, this is this is the the context of all of this. You must see it. 1st Corinthians chapter 15, verse nine. Paul said this, for I am the least of the apostles. This was not an arrogant man. I am the least of the apostles. And I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was always humbled by that remembering his past. He says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, meaning all the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. What is he saying? He's saying that as, as you look at this list of godly qualities and you look at his life, that you have to understand that he's presenting these as Graces, spiritual graces that God enabled him to display as a minister of Christ, even in the face of tribulation. He's not saying, look at me, I'm pretty great. He's saying, look at me because of the work of grace in my life. I am what I am by the grace of God. It's like I say, if you ever see anything good in my children, it's the grace of God. If you ever see anything negative, you can blame it on my wife's side of the family. (laughs) And they're sitting right here. Maybe it's statements like that that keep me out of the will. I'm, I'm not sure, but... And it's it's not true. It's not. There's anything good in them. It's God's grace on their side of the family. But I love to say it anyway. It gets laughs. Let's look at, at chapter six, uh, verse six. And let's let's begin to examine these godly qualities in Paul's life. He writes in purity and knowledge and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and genuine love. These are six expressions that express the, the high quality of life that the Lord expects, not from just apostles, but from all of us. This is the godly character that we're to have, especially in the midst of our uh, of serving the Lord under adverse circumstances. Number one, he writes, impurity. Paul says he endured in purity. What does he mean by this? This is a broad word in the Greek language, a broad word that refers to all kinds of purity, anything from sexual purity to financial integrity, to, to even purity of motives. What Paul is telling us is this, despite my hardship, despite my difficulties, there were no scandals in my life by the grace of God. That's what he's saying. He says, I endured life's tribulation without dishonoring the name of Christ. Paul didn't fall prey to any sin which would have tarnished the reputation of his master. That's what he's saying. It's by God's grace. Earlier in this letter, he actually wrote about having uh, some integrity. He told us in chapter one that he has a clear conscience before God. Let me read this to you. In chapter one, he opens this book, this letter. He says in verse 12, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience. That is to say, this is what my conscience tells me. I have a clear conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God. We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Paul said, when I, when I examine my conscience, my, I, I'm not, I'm not condemned by it. Paul certainly isn't claiming to be perfect. He was a sinner. He said he was the chief of sinners. Not he was, but he said, I am the chief of sinners. He realized that. But his conscience was clear as far as how he behaved, especially with the Corinthians. He had a clear conscience. He behaved in a holy manner and godly sincerity. He said in verse 17, he spoke about integrity of keeping his word, promises. Remember, he had promised the Corinthians, I'll visit you again. And when he didn't show up in their timetable, they were wondering about it. And false teachers came along and said, yeah, this guy didn't keep his word. This guy lies. He says he'll be here, but he's not here. Now, if you can't trust him to keep a simple thing like his itinerary, how can you trust him on the message of salvation? The man's not trustworthy. And so Paul writes, and it's rather detailed in chapter one, but I'll sum it up in verse 17. He said, therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, meaning to come to you said, or was I? Or what What I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He's saying, when I give my promise, am I speaking out of both sides of my mouth? When I say yes, do I really mean no? When I say no, do I really mean yes? He said, no, you can trust me. He goes on to tell them, you can trust me that when I make a promise, I will keep it. And then he explains why he hasn't visited them as as of uh, that date. But he had he had integrity, In keeping His Word, we need to. That's very When you make a promise, you keep your your Word.
2: It's been said that if you always tell me the truth, I can always believe you. But if you lie to me just once, I can never believe you. Integrity is huge. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more about Lakeside, call the office at 727-441-1714. Or visit lakesidechapel.com. If you want to catch up with previous broadcasts in this series, they are available for free at our website, versebyverseradio.org. Go to the Message Archive page. This is Jerry Peterson. We're close to running out of time, so let me just encourage you to join us for the next Verse by Verse. We'll continue the message Pastor Steve began today as we consider compromise and the gospel. There are some areas where compromise is essential if we hope to accomplish anything, but the gospel is one area where we have to stand fast. If we compromise on the gospel, it's no longer the gospel.
0: We are here to give you strength between.